Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It's President's Day. For many, that may mean a sale at a local car dealership or furniture store. But here at Smart Talk, we talk about American presidents on President's Day. If you haven't seen or heard about one already today, you'll probably see one of those lists of the best and worst presidents. We'll discuss the best and worst, but also look at what attributes the most successful and not-so-successful presidents had, and look at presidents who made decisions that were game-changers, but otherwise are not mentioned in the top tier of presidents. Joining us for our discussion today is Dr. David O'Connell, professor of political science at Dickinson College. Dr. O'Connell, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again. All right. Let's talk about some generalities. How should presidents be judged? Well, that's a really interesting question because I think the whole process of judging presidents is a complex one. We have a number of different things we have to, to keep in mind. One is is context in which they served. So does a president that served under difficult circumstances get more allowances in terms of maybe achieving a little less because they started from a, a lower position? So should Obama be given more leeway for the fact that he took over in a time of an economic recession with wars abroad and so forth. Or at the other t- other uh, way of looking at that is that difficult circumstances are actually an opportunity. Uh, that's that old saying, don't let a crisis go to waste. You know, you think about Bill Clinton, who lamented that 9-11 didn't happen under his watch because he felt that without that type of a crisis, no president could truly achieve greatness. So we have to think about the context in which they serve the events that they were dealing with, things that are outside of their control. The other thing that makes it difficult to rank presidents is that we have to evaluate how our morals have changed and whether we're judging those presidents by the standards of our time or the standards of their time. And I call this the Andrew Jackson problem because by many definitions of greatness, Andrew Jackson would be a tremendously successful, influential president. He was a a great Democrat who democratized civil service, set up modern political parties, brought new people into the process. But at the same time, he's a slave owner uh, and his policies towards Native Americans led to thousands of deaths. We find these things abhorrent today, even though at the time they reflected the, the general values of political society. So are we applying our standards today or our standards from from back then. Uh, so it makes it very difficult to, to judge greatness. But I think the thing that all great presidents do, uh, and that's the standard that I would use, is that they're aware of their limitations, uh, that they know that the president is serving in a system of government that involves separate institutions sharing powers, and that they try to be, as some political scientists have said, facilitators of change rather than directors of change. So they recognize opportunities that exist and then try to exploit those rather than going beyond what the political system and their own authority can support. And throughout this program, we're going to bring up examples. But just in your first answer, I can think of two or three. One, right at the end, when you talked about uh, presidents accepting their limitations, Abraham Lincoln almost universally is pointed to as the greatest American president for holding the union together, uh, you know, f- signing the Emancipation Proclamation, which uh, freed slaves when the Civil War ended. But at the same time, Abraham Lincoln did something that was in violation of the U.S. Constitution that maybe no other president has done, and that is he suspended yep. the writ of habeas, habeas corpus, corpus. Yeah. which you know, t- takes away a lot of freedom. So 
kind of justify that, if you will. Yeah, Lincoln did a lot of unconstitutional things. In addition to suspending the writ of habeas corpus, he also spent money that hadn't been appropriated. He expanded the size of the army without Congress's approval. He closed down certain newspapers uh, and criminalized them uh, for uh, the effort, uh, criticisms that they made of the of the war effort. Uh, so that is kind of something that's problematic. But I think it goes back to the point about context, that we might be willing to allow for those uh, uh, moments where he's ceded his authority, given the magnitude of the challenge that he faced. Uh, you know, this is the most perilous moment in the history of, of America. Uh, and he was able to preserve the union. And so that goal actually perhaps justifies, the end justifies the means there. And I think that for a lot of people, that would be the case. Just so our audience knows, the writ of habeas corpus is right. what? Uh, so the writ of habeas corpus is requires for prisoners to be presented for a judge so that their detention can be justified. Mm. Uh, and Lincoln suspended that because what was happening is that uh, judges in the Maryland area uh, were freeing Confederate sympathizers who were um, uh, charged with uh, vandalism on union supply lines. Mm. Okay. I want to go back a little bit farther something else you said uh, that you quoted Bill Clinton as saying you need a crisis to be truly a great president. Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, which uh, has a home here in central Pennsylvania, was a war hero in World War II. Uh, Many times during his administration and right after the the administration of Dwight Eisenhower, people looked at him and said, oh, Eisenhower, yawn. you know, he really didn't do anything. Well, if you look at it, there really wasn't a great crisis during the Eisenhower administration. Now, 50 years later, 60 years later, many historians have looked at Eisenhower and said, you know what? Eisenhower was a pretty good president. Yeah, actually, Eisenhower is my favorite president, so I'm glad you brought him up. I think that Eisenhower's reputation has really been rehabilitated over time. Certainly when he left office, there was this image that he hadn't really done much. Uh, Perhaps he hadn't even been president, right? He had been a presider instead of a president, and really it was Sherman Adams, his powerful chief of staff, who was making the important decisions and doing the hard work of running the American government on a day-to-day basis. Eisenhower instead was, was off golfing, spending his time with his buddies at Augusta. Uh, But that actually has been shown to be perhaps evidence of his great leadership. Uh, Fred Greenstein, a political scientist, has written about hidden hand leadership. Uh, What he talks about is how you have uh, the president being able to play two, two roles. He has to be chief of state, that unifying figure that plays a, a broad role in bringing people together and participates in ceremonial observances, uh, the lighting of the Christmas tree, throwing our first pitches at baseball games, and so forth. Uh, then you have the president as a chief executive and chief legislature. Uh, and that is the role where the president has to be political. He has to make tough decisions that are going to upset people. Many countries, these two roles are split. So you'll have a, a monarch who plays the role of chief of state and then a prime minister who's the chief executive, chief chief legislator. Uh, In America, those two roles are combined, and that makes it difficult for presidents to play that political role while still maintaining their popularity. Eisenhower's genius was that he hid his political side. He concealed his political activities. He allowed people to develop impressions of him that weren't true. uh, And then ultimately, that allowed him to maintain that popularity as chief of state. So you looked at his press conferences answers, and they'd be really kind of vague. And he'd admit he didn't have enough information. He'd tell people to talk to someone else. 
But then when you study the memos that have been released of his internal deliberations, he understood these issues with great acuity, uh, a depth of knowledge that people really didn't think that he had. He let people think that, hey, he was golfing all the time uh, and that he wasn't really engaged in being president when really he was working for the self uh, to the point of serious health problems. Uh, so this was part of his leadership strategy. As to the point about, about crisis, uh, I think that Eisenhower actually speaks to the benefits of successful inaction. So the fact that Things didn't. A lot of things didn't happen during his administration. That, for me, is one of the signs of his greatness. Because we think about the challenge that, is, that he was facing. This is perhaps the most difficult time of the Cold War. You have potential uh, violence that could have erupted over Berlin, the Straits of Taiwan, Suez, etc. Vietnam. Right, the French fall in Vietnam in 1954. There's a lot of pressure domestically for the U.S. to make a military response to that. Eisenhower stepped back and said, "A ground war in Asia can't be won and should never be fought." And so the fact that he ends the war in Korea and he keeps the United States out of any military conflict, I think that's a sign of his greatness. At the same time, after the launch of Sputnik 1957, there's great pressure on Eisenhower to boost defense spending. And he instead warns of a burgeoning military-industrial complex, warnings that certainly uh, seemed prescient in years to come. And still being quoted today. Absolutely. So I think that the fact that things didn't necessarily happen during his administration, that was a sign that he prevented those things from happening. And in some ways, in this case, is a testament to his his greatness. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. On this President's Day, we're being joined by Dr. David O'Connell, professor of political science at Dickinson College, talking about the presidents. Now, you mentioned that Presidents realizing their limitations, you see that is one of the great attributes. What other attributes have successful presidents had? Well, I think successful presidents, uh, and for me, it really does all go to different aspects of recognizing their limitations. So if they're great speakers, that is a great characteristic of, uh, of a good president. But Can I interrupt for just one second? Yeah. Because one of the ways I look at that is inspirational speakers. Mm -hmm. I think of in, in modern presidents, Reagan and Kennedy, two presidents that inspired very many Americans and often are looked upon as very successful presidents. Kennedy, it's, it's kind of hard to tell because he only had two years in office. Reagan is uh, looked at as someone who turned the country around after the late 70s. But they both were inspirational speakers, and that seemed to be their their strength, if you will. Yeah, and I think then it comes down to knowing what that speech can accomplish and using in the right way. So both individuals did that. Reagan realized that he couldn't go on television all the time and make constant public appeals because eventually people would, would tune him out. And that's certainly what we've seen in research is that when presidents try to make a speech to move public opinion, public opinion doesn't respond. Reagan on issue after issue is unable to change people's minds on Iran-Contra, on defense spending, on environmental protection, business regulation whatever issue you want to look at the data, he's not changing people's minds. So what's significant is he uses speech in a different way to connect to people, to explain events that people struggled to accept. I think his speech in the aftermath of the Challenger explosion is one of the most beautiful and touching speeches in all of presidential history. Uh, so Reagan uses that speech in the right way. He uses it as a way of pressuring members of Congress, threatening to go public, threatening to give a speech uh, while actually bargaining behind the scenes and playing upon his relationships with influential politicians like Tip O'Neill and so forth. So it's it's 
taking that skill that you have for great speech and not convincing yourself that, hey, I can change everyone's mind and accomplish things that the public is dead set against. Reagan didn't, didn't try to do that. And that's why I think being a good speaker worked to his advantage, where sometimes that skill can wind up hurting people because they overestimate their own abilities. Now, Kennedy, how many Democrats, especially in the last 50 years, have you heard say they got into politics, they got into public service yep. because they were inspired by John F. Kennedy? Yeah, famous picture of Bill Clinton at, at Boys State shaking Kennedy's hand when he was 16 years old. Uh, and so certainly he inspired a lot of people. And that's another way that speech can be a benefit, uh, that it can make those personal connections to people and motivate them to make certain decisions in their life. Although I don't know how widespread that that would be. But what are some of the other attributes? I interrupted you to right. talk about inspiration. Right. Uh, well, I think certainly another ap- attribute of a great president is someone who's a, a good bargainer, uh, someone who is able to work with Congress uh, and recognizes that you have to preserve your bargaining advantages to make exchanges and get things done, especially in an era of divided government. Uh, the divided government for most of American history was was not common. It's become something that's pretty much a regular fixture of our political environment today. Polarization, which has made it more difficult for Republicans and Democrats to come to an agreement. Uh, that's something that's accelerated since the 19th 1960s, really dating to the Southern realignment, Democrats moving, uh, or rather Southern conservatives moving to the Democratic Party after, uh, or to the Republican Party after the Democratic Party's embrace of civil rights. Uh, and that's made the Senate the burial ground of, of legislation. You've seen this dramatic increase of filibusters and so forth. So you have all these obstacles making it difficult to work with, with Congress. Uh, and those obstacles even date before the 1960s. Obviously, every president has to face this. So great presidents are presidents who are able to work with members of Congress. Uh, there's this analogy that Congress is like a, a theater. Right? Presidents may be a great actor. They may be really well-liked, but the theater is Set, the audience is set. They've got to work with with who's there. Uh, and so I think that presidents who are able to maintain their professional reputation, who know that if they're going to get votes, they have to make it in someone else's interest to do so, those turn out to be great presidents too. I noticed you didn't mention leadership. Now, yeah. maybe some of what you've described can you know fall under the umbrella of leadership. But what about leadership? So what, what would you mean by, by leadership? How would you define that? Well, that sometimes there are people out there that, that may do things that, that may not be popular, but they do find yeah. uh, people who will follow them because they've made a good, good case for it or that they've made people see that this is a way we have to go. We may not like it, that they are inspirational and that, that they can work with the other side. So I guess yeah. in a lot of ways, it's what you described and it does fall under that umbrella of leadership. Right. Well, I I think what you mentioned there at the start about doing things that might be unpopular, uh, that's a difficult uh, element of presidential leadership to weigh uh, because sometimes history vindicates those choices and other times history doesn't. So an example, I think, of a really unpopular decision at the time that we've come to respect would be Gerald Ford's decision to pardon Richard Nixon. At the time, extremely unpopular. Extremely Probably cost unpopular. him the election. Oh, it definitely did. Uh, surveys show that 7% of people said they voted against Ford explicitly because of the pardon, and in his election, he lost by by two points. Uh, immediately after the pardon, he had started the presidency, 71% approval. He drops 21, 21 points, and it starts a, a decline that he never really rebounds from. Uh, you know, this is just one month into his administration, and he's faced with the fact that he was the vice president of Nixon. Uh, and then there's this question, was there a deal? Did he agree to 
pardon Nixon in exchange for a Nixon resignation that would allow him to become president. That forces him to go and testify before Congress and bang on the table. There was no deal, period. Uh, So extremely unpopular decision that almost no one supports. But in the long run, it's been it's been vindicated. I think uh, most people realize that it saved the United States from a, a series of of costly trials, uh, perhaps putting a president on trial, just uh, ending the two years uh, the slow drip of revelations relating to Watergate. They really shaken people's trust. In, uh, in government. Ford actually goes on to win a Profile and Courage Award from Ted Kennedy, who was one of the harshest critics of the pardon at the time. So that's an unpopular decision that in the long run, people would say that was leadership. He did something that cost him personally, maybe cost him his job, but it was the, it was the right thing to do. Whereas you have decisions like uh, Johnson and Nixon uh, in the latter stages of the Vietnam War, public opinion opposes the war starting in 1968. War's not going to end till 1973. They continue on in this course that I don't think today a lot of people would say was in America's national interest. So just doing things that are unpopular because you think they're right, it's it's hard to say that's always always good examples of leadership. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. You're home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the presidents on President's Day. Our guest is Dr. David O'Connell, professor of political science at Dickinson College. And we're hoping to bring out some information that uh, you may not know about the presidents. You often hear about the best. You often hear about the worst. And I'm sure you will see those lists. And we may even talk about that on the program today. But we want to bring out some little known facts. But here's one that I'm curious as to your opinion, and we'll discuss a little bit more. Most overrated president. Most overrated president. Okay. So the two presidents that, for me, I always associate with being overrated, one is Kennedy. Even though we were talking earlier about his role inspiring people to enter government service uh, and his rhetorical leadership of the country, the famous words about uh, not asking what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, uh, I I think ultimately Kennedy is overrated. And that, it seems to me, the to be the way the scholarly consensus is moving to. So if we think about Kennedy's presidency, obviously he dies under tragic circumstances. He's got a glamorous image that meant a lot of people personally connected to him uh, and felt emotionally moved after his death, had trouble sleeping, polls show. Uh, But his actual record is is pretty paltry when it comes to domestic accomplishments. Kennedy was a president who wasn't really interested in domestic affairs, uh, that he was more focused on foreign policy, feeling that uh, you know you didn't even really need a president for domestic policy. Foreign policy was where where you needed a president. Indeed, the difference, Kennedy said, between foreign and domestic policy is domestic policy, a failure means you're built doesn't pass. Foreign policy means potentially your country is wiped out. So he devotes his time there. Uh, and his legislative accomplishments are, are relatively meager. Uh, the things that Kennedy wanted to accomplish, aid to education, civil rights, health care, these things are going to be done by Lyndon Johnson when Johnson takes over. Uh, then Kennedy is very timid on civil rights. Uh, ultimately, he comes out in strong support of civil rights, June 11th, 1963, saying it's a moral issue as old as scriptures. But that's in his third year as president. Uh, in his first few years, he favors the strategy of executive action, limited executive orders, making some appointments to the judicial branch of African-Americans, although those are offset by the good number of segregationists he appoints in the South. Uh, he dragged his feet on promises that he made for civil rights. Uh, Kennedy had said that he would end 
discrimination in public housing with a stroke of the presidential pen. It's not until Thanksgiving of 1962 that he does so, and it's a very limited order at that point. Uh, So the history of civil rights with Kennedy is really him being pushed into actions that he was reluctant to take. And he didn't necessarily feel that inequity the way, say, Bobby Kennedy ultimately did. Uh, When it comes to foreign policy, his leadership in the Cuban Missile Crisis is perhaps the, the standard of great leadership under pressure. But that's counterbalanced by his terrible performance in the Bay of Pigs, which is perhaps the most disastrous foreign policy operation of the of the modern presidency, where Kennedy and his team had convinced themselves of totally unrealistic things that, hey, uh, there's going to be an uprising in Cuba after this invasion, even though there was no sign that that would happen, that, hey, no one would know this was coming, even though the New York Times had already reported the CIA was was planning for it, that, hey, this, inv- this operation could succeed without air cover, even though no military strategist thought that it could. Uh, and finally, I think Kennedy's overrated because of his moral failures. Those were known by reporters at the time, but they were concealed because they they liked him uh, and they respected his agenda. But today we know about his extensive womanizing, which certainly does not uh, lend itself to the type of refined and dignified presidential leadership that we might expect today. Not even to say anything about how that might have put him personally at risk when he's having Secret Service agents bring him prostitutes and and things like that. So that's one that jumps out at me as someone who's really overrated. And then I also look to, to Wilson. Uh, I think Wilson is another president who's often in top 10 lists. And I would say that he is overrated. Uh, certainly, he has some meaningful accomplishments leading the country through World War I, uh, setting up the basis of the modern economic system with the Federal Reserve Act and so forth. But his stubbornness, which was a key personality characteristic, meant that he didn't compromise on the Treaty of Versailles. U.S. is not going to ratify that treaty, not join the League of Nations. And the failure of countries to resolve the problems at the end of World War I leads into, in some sense, World War II. He passes laws like the Espionage Act that is going to criminalize dissenter in World War I, resulting in about 1,500 people being jailed, including leaders of uh, the Socialist Party, just people who had different political opinions. Uh, and finally, there is his issue on race, too, and that goes back to the to the Jackson problem, uh, the Andrew Jackson problem. But Wilson was from Virginia. He was a Southerner uh, and he was a supporter of segregation and just was not not helpful uh, towards the cause of minority populations. You know, this is a president who screened uh, The Birth of a Nation at the White House, terribly racist film that presents this revisionist history of Reconstruction where uh, white Southerners are being persecuted by freed slaves, which, of course, is not at all what happened. Uh, and then he says that it's it's this brilliant film that's written with lightning, and the worst thing is that it's, quote, all terribly true, which it wasn't. So I think that Wilson is another president that, despite his idealistic world vision and his progressive approach toward presidential leadership, uh, I'd say is overrated. What about underrated? Well, Eisenhower, I think, is is the one that I would point to most as underrated, going back to our, our discussion earlier, for his his role in successful inaction, for reorienting the Republican Party, accepting the, the New Deal uh, and expanding Social Security and doing things that are going to make Republicans more successful in the long run for his brilliant political strategy. Uh, and, you know, the thing that Eisenhower is often criticized is similar to, to Kennedy and Wilson. It would be civil rights. But I don't think his record is necessarily a complete disaster here. Uh, he passes the Civil Rights Act of 1957, passes the Civil Rights Act of 1960, push comes to shove. He's going to uh, federalize the National Guard to integrate schools in Little Rock. So, uh, you know, it's not a great 
great record. It's not a great record, but it's not it's not a terrible record either. Going back further, anyone else that uh, you can think of that uh, was underrated? That would be underrated even further. Well, I think one of the difficulties in doing so, and that's from my perspective, I think as a political scientist as opposed to historian, is that the role of the president has changed so much. Uh, we talk about Franklin Roosevelt as being the first modern president uh, because Roosevelt sets up the institutional basis of the office uh, where the Executive Reorganization Act uh, provides for the first time a White House staff that they're not drawing on aides from uh, other areas. They're not having to hire their family members like George Washington had to do back in the day. Uh, and that he changes the expectations of presidential leadership. Uh, in some sense, it's it's the myth of Roosevelt, the idea that, uh, hey, he ended the Great Depression, which, which he did not. Uh, you know, it's 1937, 1938, the country slips back into a, a massive recession. Unemployment creeps back up to 19%. It's really only World War II that ends the Depression. There's this image that Roosevelt dominated Congress and got everything that he ever wanted from them. Again, not true. His second term, things bogged down with the problems over the court packing plan, uh, his efforts to purge the Democratic Party of his opponents in 1938. But he sets this image that presidents are going to direct the economy. Presidents are going to dominate Congress. They're going to lead the free world. And so we look at Roosevelt as a dividing line. And then when we think about those earlier presidents, you know, I often think of someone like uh, Millard Millard Fillmore, and I have to go back and, and look. Is that actually a president, or did I did I make that person up? Uh, because there's there's not much to say because they were really glorified clerks. Their main job, presidents in the 19th century, main job is distributing patronage, uh, and that's actually going to get a president killed. Uh, Garfield's going to be killed by a disappointed patronage seeker, uh, and so they didn't have the responsibilities that presidents today have, which makes it hard for them to be overrated or or underrated. One of Lincoln's biggest complaints, especially in the early years of his presidency, all the people that were coming to the White House looking for jobs. Yeah. And even on the level of postal inspectors or, or post office, you know, uh, the chief of a, a local post yep. office, I guess that was a big patronage job back in those days. But he constantly had people in the White House looking for a job. And that was one of his uh, big complaints. Uh, why does it take years to judge a president? Right. And I think that's another interesting thing. So the first question that we were talking about, how we judge greatness, because events, they take time to develop and we don't know how things are going to shake out over the long run. So Truman's a, another president, left office, extremely unpopular. His low point in his approval rating is 22 percent. Uh, only 22 percent of people in 1952 thought he was doing a good job as people were really kind of disgusted with his uh, problems in Korea, corruption in his administration, the loss of China in 1950 and so forth. Uh, but now today we say that Truman was a pretty good president, a near great president because because his foreign policy of containment uh, has been where the focus of the United States was building up its conventional nuclear arsenal to prevent Soviet expansionism without getting into an armed conflict, that this was the right approach. So that tripling of military expenditures that he was responsible for uh, seems to like Ford's part of Nixon, been ratified over time. But we didn't realize that then. So it's only after 40 years where the Soviet Union's internal contradictions eventually lead to its collapse and the United States is able to win the Cold War that we're able to kind of see Truman's greatness. And that's something I, I sometimes say to people about George W. Bush, that Bush left office very unpopular. 
Uh, but a lot remains to be known about how his decisions in the Middle East will play out over the long term. They may not look very well right now, but if years from now, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan become peaceful democratic societies that spark a wave of change throughout the Middle East, uh, leading to the spread of liberal democracy and free market economies, and that ultimately reduces a lot of the incentive for international terrorism, then his reputation is going to be a lot better. But that can't happen in five, 10 years. That's going to have to happen in 25, 30, 40, 50 years. And so I think that some of these decisions, their impacts, they're just not going to be felt for a long time. So we won't recognize great presidents when we have them. And most people, as you said, today looking at George W. Bush's record would say that uh, the Iraq war was a huge mistake right. and that uh, would find it hard to believe that 25 years down the road that, that that we would look at it differently. But we have to wait for those things. Right. There have been things throughout history like that. Yep, And it may very well turn out to be a huge mistake that has led to the the birth of more complex terrorist threats like ISIS that – provide even more difficult security challenges that the United States has to face than they were facing back then. One of the things I think about with uh, Harry Truman, I mean, he had a a, a nickname, some people called him, give him hell Harry, uh, of being very blunt speaking, of uh, saying what was on his mind. He had the the thing on his desk, said the buck stops here. Uh, And, you know, he had a lot of other uh, tough talk attributed to him. And I wonder, and that was pre-television age, whether a Harry Truman could be elected today. I mean, you see a Donald Trump, and one of the things that uh, his supporters find refreshing, if you will, is that they say he's not politically correct, that he says what's on his mind. I mean, Harry Truman maybe didn't insult as many people as Donald Trump is today, but could uh, Harry Truman be elected today? I think so. I think that Truman, even though he did speak his mind. There's no question about that. He also knew where to draw the line. So one of the things that Truman did as a stress release mechanism is he'd write letters to himself. So he was upset with a critic. He'd write a long letter to them, and then he'd just put it away in a drawer never to send it. So kind of like we do with emails. We read (laughs) the email and don't send it. Right, right. Right. Exactly. Uh, And so that prevented him from lashing out in ways that might have been detrimental to him. Uh, And so he, he knew where to draw that line. But I think that being able to speak your mind, that's something that people have always found refreshing in American politics. Uh, People who are not political, that they they cut through all that. Chris Christie's campaign slogan was telling it like it is. Uh, And I think that 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 is something that was appealing back then and is still appealing today. But you got to you got to know where where the line is and not go too far so that you offend people like, say, a Donald Trump has done. And Chris Christie, who was now on right, the sidelines. Right, right. Of course, there could have be a, a, a lot to do with that, uh, with maybe uh, some traffic in yeah. the bridges <laughs> other than uh, right. his uh, presidential campaign. Uh, you've touched on a few of these, but I'm curious uh, your thoughts on presidents who have been successful in many ways, but there was one or two events in their administrations that that's the taste, that's their legacy. That's the taste that left in the American people's mouths. That's their legacies. And a couple I'm going to bring to mind. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, you mentioned some of uh, his domestic successes. If it wasn't for Vietnam, (laughs) Lyndon Johnson may be considered a very good, if not great president. Uh, But there is Vietnam. Richard Nixon. Now, many people would find this hard to believe because we've heard about the character flaws of Nixon uh, and Watergate and how he misled the country and some of the other things he did, maybe lying about the secret plan to get out of Vietnam. But he did open the door to China and there were other accomplishments there. So 
the question I'm asking in a long-winded way is, what about some of those presidents who do who did have some successes, but they're always remembered for something else? Yeah, and I think that that is uh, an interesting, a really interesting question. And I laughed because other than Vietnam, and yeah, it's, I know. <laughs> it's impossible to have that discussion of Lyndon Johnson without Vietnam, which was a foreign policy that uh, was not in America's interest, that was based on a mistaken theory of what would happen if a U.S backed country were to fall to communism and what that would mean for U.S. commitments to other democracies around the world uh, that cost thousands of American lives. Uh, And so it's hard to just kind of evaluate Johnson without that coming right to the fore. Uh, And so Johnson knew that at the time, too. If you look at his private recollections uh, and his interviews that he did with with Doris Kearns, uh, really really show this, that he felt he was a, a martyr, that he had all these great things that he wanted to accomplish. And he was accomplishing many of them, but he was going to be remembered for Vietnam and he didn't want anything to do with it, uh, that he felt that he had no choice. And that especially as a Democrat, being accused of being soft on communism at that point was just untenable. Uh, so it's it's hard to kind of judge him without that being the number one thing. I think, Nixon, you're right. Another president who has a lot of great accomplishments, brilliant, strategic, long-range thinker, opens up China through some very careful diplomacy. Uh, you know, Henry Kissinger making that midnight flight uh, where he pretended that he was sick to uh, open up the possibility of that visit. Uh, that phrase, Nixon goes to China, that only only Richard Nixon, with his long record of opposing communism, going back to his campaigns for the United States Congress uh, and his leadership of the House Un-American Affairs Committee, only Richard Nixon would have been able to do that. Uh, at the same time, he reduces tensions with the Soviet Union, uh, that he has some pretty, uh, today, impressive environmental achievements, Clean Air Act and so forth. Uh, but you have a, a scandal that is going to ultimately involve the abuse of power. And we've got to remember, too, that Watergate is not just referring to the break-in of a Watergate no. apartment complex in June of 1972. Probably the smallest part. Part of, of the smallest part, right. It's the political targeting of opponents by the IRS. It's the legal wiretapping of reporters. Uh, it's the enemies list. It's all these other things that Nixon did that reflected an abuse of power. Uh, and so I think that both those presidents are really interesting to talk about for me because They're two individuals that have great political skills. Nixon, an incredible international leader. Uh, Johnson, great at knowing people's personal motivations and working the gears of Congress, but they were undermined by their personal flaws. Each of them were deeply insecure, paranoid, and it led them to make poor decisions that were not in America's interest and not in their own interest. I asked this question about Truman, but could a Nixon, could a Johnson be elected today? with television, with communication, with social media? Yeah, I think Johnson might be a tougher call because he was a pretty poor public speaker. Uh, And it wasn't as important back then. But today, his record as working within Congress and having those bargaining skills, that might be less important in a political campaign that runs multiple years. Mitt Romney ran for president for six years. Think of how often he was out in public giving speeches, preparing for that moment. The characteristics that we look for in candidates today are not necessarily the same characteristics that you need to be successful as a president. So Johnson's characteristics as a legislative bargainer, they're not necessarily going to help him run a multi-year presidential campaign. So I think it would be more difficult for him. But you know the support that he had obtained within the Democratic Party over those long years in Congress, that would certainly help his chances of getting a nomination too. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Dr. David O'Connell, professor of political science at Dickinson College. We're talking about the presidents during President's Day. One of the things I wanted to do during this program, uh, Dr. O'Connell, was uh, to talk about some little-known facts. Uh, There are, I know, I kind of called them game changers, some History, some things that have happened in history that uh, people may not realize uh, that it was one of those things that happened in spite of what was intended, unintended consequences. But you have several that you've listed for me. What are they? Okay, so I have three little-known facts that I think suggest important lessons about presidential history and presidential power. So the first is about the Gettysburg Address, obviously relevant to the listeners of the program. Did you have to memorize that when you were in school and, and oh, recite yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had to do that in high school. It was very awkward for, for everyone involved. Uh, but I got through it. And it kind of asks the question, why was I able to memorize this really significant speech, one of the most significant speeches in all of presidential history? Well, I was able to memorize it because it was incredibly short. It's only about 300 words, give or take. Why is this speech so short? That's kind of the interesting question. And that's because Lincoln was not actually the featured speaker at Gettysburg. Featured speaker was Edward Everett, 69-year-old former senator from Massachusetts, who spoke for two hours, two hours uh, about kind of loss and the meaning of the battle and so forth. And then Lincoln gives his his short five-minute address that only a few copies of exist today, but yet everyone recognizes as one of the most poignantly beautiful speeches in presidential history. And I think this small fact is important because it speaks to how the role of the president has changed. Uh, that's something that we talked about a few minutes ago, the difference between presidents in the 20th, 21st century and presidents in the 19th century. Lincoln was by far the most powerful pre-modern president. Uh, again, earlier in the program, we talked about the unconstitutional or extra-constitutional things that he did to preserve the union. But at the same time, He's going to be put in a position where he's going to sit and listen to someone else speak for two hours. You can't imagine Obama sitting and no. waiting two hours for someone to speak. I can't imagine that. me or no. anyone else sitting for no. two hours listening to this uh, guy. And I do think that speaks to then how the role of the president has changed. Second little-known presidential fact that I think has a valuable lesson uh, would be about John Quincy Adams' post-presidential career. So John Quincy Adams becomes president in 1824. Uh, it's, it's controversial the way he becomes president because he does not win the popular vote. He does not win the electoral college vote. But through a corrupt bargain with Henry Clay, where Clay gets a promise to become Secretary of State. When the election is thrown to the House of Representatives, Clay throws his support behind Quincy Adams, and then Quincy Adams becomes president, denying Andrew Jackson his his just victory. Uh, and this then kind of sets the stage for what's going to be pretty much a failed presidency, uh, a very politicized presidency, uh, and really just a waiting period before Jackson sweeps into power in the transformative, reconstructive election of 1828. So John Quincy Adams, who had a long distinguished career in politics before becoming president, Uh, maybe the most prepared president at that point uh, in American history, uh, coming from a famous family as well, believing that he'd been groomed for greatness, goes back 
uh, to Massachusetts, just disappointed with how things have have turned out. Uh, he's depressed about the loss. He has some family tragedy. And so what he decides to do is he decides to stand for election uh, for his old seat in the House of Representatives. He's elected back to the House of Representatives. He goes on to serve nine terms, uh, nine additional terms. He's actually going to die on the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, and while he's in the House, he becomes known as Old Man Eloquent because he became the most forceful and passionate person advocating for the abolition of slavery in the House of Representatives. Uh, He defends the slaves that had been uh, involved in the Amistad case, uh, secures their freedom with a brilliant closing argument. So he becomes a national moral leader. And I think the important lesson here is that it says how presidents, after they leave office, they've still got to think about what they're they're going to do. Uh, and that's something that we see Obama now trying to weigh. What is his post-presidency going to be? Talking about how he might use technology to talk about uh, his story as connecting to larger global and American stories. Uh, where is his his library going to be? Those are questions he's asking. How he's going to pay for it? What are his key goals going to be? Uh, and certainly presidents have invested more and more time in this post-presidency, and it's a way of rehabilitating their legacy. You look at someone like like Carter, uh, who left office very dis, uh, a disrespected place. Uh, his work on free elections and things like that have somewhat rehabilitated his reputation. Before you get to the third one, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Quincy Adams. First of all, your example of President Obama, I can't imagine – Barack Obama running for president or excuse me, running for Congress uh, nine times and uh, serving in the House of Representatives for another 18 years. Did they call Quincy Adams President Adams or Congressman Adams? That I I do not know. Uh, But I I think it it wouldn't surprise me if they called him Congressman Adams because it was a sign that being president was not necessarily the most significant thing that you could accomplish in your life at that point. Even as you go forward to William Howard Taft, he leaves the presidency and then he goes to the Supreme Court, uh, that you could still go on to hold meaningful roles in government, whereas today uh, you can't go back to to government. Uh, It's just just not possible once you've reached the the pinnacle of of power like Obama has. And Howard Taft is another that uh, is looked upon by many as being a more successful Supreme Court justice than he was as president. Yeah, absolutely. He's instrumental in positioning the Supreme Court as a co-equal branch of government uh, through some institutional reforms. Uh, unfortunately, what most people remember about Taft is, is two things, right? That he had facial hair. His last president had <laughs> facial hair and he got stuck in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He was a big guy. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So who was that tran- uh, third transformative president? Okay. So my third fun presidential fact that I think speaks to a larger lesson uh, is that Ronald Reagan was the only president to be head of a labor union. Uh, so Reagan was head of the Screen Actors Guild. And I think the lesson here is it really shows how pre-presidential experience can uh, influence how presidents perform their duties once they they reach higher office. Reagan, there's a lot of talk about his great relationship with Democratic politicians, how he and Tip O'Neill had a friendly relationship. Chris Matthews has that that book out. Uh, I think Tipper and the Gipper or something like that. I don't don't know what the title is. Uh, But Reagan was really taking skills that he had learned as a labor leader and applying it to presidential leadership. So when Reagan would be in a meeting with 
people on both sides of an issue arguing their positions. He'd take a legal pad out. He'd write down the points that he felt that each side could agree with, and then he'd present it at the end and see if they could come to a compromise. And that's a skill that he got as a labor leader. At the same time, he was a tough negotiator. Right? He was a tough negotiator who certainly proved it with the air traffic controller strike, uh, where they threatened to go on strike, and he said that this is illegal and there will be serious consequences. I will enforce the law if if you go on strike. They went on strike, so he fires thousands of air traffic controllers, moves to decertify the union, uh, negotiates with the new union that forms. Uh, he was a tough negotiator. Proved it with the Soviets, uh, and I think that comes from the experience of having to hammer out deals at the Screen Actors Guild as well. So oftentimes we don't maybe pay enough attention to what presidents did before becoming presidential candidates. It's how they run their campaign, but that experience I think can indicate how they're going to lead. You talked a little bit about Jimmy Carter, and it prompted a question: uh, Presidents who have been much more successful as ex-presidents. Right. Jimmy Carter, I think, is the poster boy for that because mm-hmm. his administration in very many ways was looked at as a failure, at least not a successful administration. For those of us who lived through it, I mean, those four years, especially at the end with the, with the, the Iranian, the hostages Hostage, in yep. Iran, gas prices going through the roof, uh, inflation, uh, interest rates that were so high. You know, he talked about a malaise in the American people. And one of the reasons probably that Reagan was elected was that optimism that he had. But since he's left the Oval Office, Jimmy Carter has been looked upon as a world citizen and just respected the world over. Are there other presidents like that? Well, I think that Carter is perhaps your best example. And I agree with you that, uh, you know, my class would would laugh about this because I have such a low opinion of of Jimmy Carter. Actually, in the the last class that I held last semester, uh, students gave me a Jimmy Carter bobblehead doll as like a thank you (laughs) gift to to joke about all the critical things that I had said over the course of the semester. Uh, I think Carter was someone who just didn't understand presidential power. Uh, You know, the symbolic things that he did, selling the presidential yacht, wearing cardigan sweaters in a a national television address, carrying his own luggage, refusing to play hail to the chief. These things diminished him in the eyes of the public and his opponents and ultimately made him a weaker bargainer. But he thought he was being the common man. I know. And that maybe works as uh, as a candidate, but it works less when you're actually chief of state, a one-man distillation of the American people. He also tended to, to micromanage. Uh, there are stories, and I'm not sure if they are true, but I totally believe them, that he actually would be involved in setting the playing schedule at the White House tennis courts early in his presidency. Why would Jimmy Carter bother himself with those things? Uh, that he made terrible staff appointments. Uh, you know, He brings the Georgia mafia with him to Washington. None of these people have experience. They don't dress the right way. They're wearing their jeans and they have their shaggy haircuts and they're upsetting people with their just uh, their inability to fit into to Washington culture. So Carter, uh, you know, really a, a failed presidency. And for me, the defining image is him working the phones frantically to free the hostages on Reagan's inauguration day, his last hours, still trying to free these hostages that have been held for over a year and severely diminished American stature abroad. But after the presidency, he's really developed that image, as you say, as a world citizen uh, working on free elections and diseases and things like that, uh, that I think has improved his reputation. But what's interesting is not every president tries to play that that role. So there are presidents in this post-presidency 
that just recede from public life. Ronald Reagan was one of those presidents uh, that he comes out, he gives a speech at the 1992 Republican convention. He lobbies for for the Brady Bill, uh, the handgun restrictions uh, related to the assassination attempt on his life in 1981. But mostly he plays a quiet life uh, even before he's diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's. Uh, George W. Bush, obviously someone who's kind of retreated to a private life, has not been critical of Obama, uh, given him space to lead. Other presidents uh, have taken that post-presidency as an opportunity to, to make money, uh, to address their financial situation. Gerald Ford was someone who, who took that route uh, originally, uh, that his press secretary, Gerald Terhorst, actually wrote publicly about how it become Ford Inc. and that he's endorsing presidential memos and he's on the boards of all these companies and he's doing it so he can buy a nice house in California because they didn't have much money saved up. Clinton, when he started, was someone who really focused on making money to pay off his excessive legal bills that had uh, accumulated over the time that he was defending himself on lawsuits in the White House. So I don't know that there are a lot of examples like Jimmy Carter, of presidents who have used that post-presidency to rehabilitate their reputation because not everyone chooses to to devote themselves to those those pursuits. Uh, some are, are comfortable just receding into public life. Other are comfortable making some money and making their life more comfortable privately. We only have about four minutes left or so. And I started the program by saying that uh, over the President's Day weekend, we hear a lot about best and worst. So I'm going to ask you quickly to talk about your opinion. Okay. Best president. Best president. Well, I mean, I think, and it's. I'm sorry if it's a if it's a boring answer for for you and the listeners, but I mean, it has to it has to be Lincoln. If we look at the ratings of American presidents, whether that is in the form of political scientists like myself, uh, that there's a recent survey, 2014. Uh, undertaken by two political scientists who surveyed people who are members of the uh, executive politics section of our of our major uh, group of political scientists, our political science association, uh, whether it's ratings of historians. C-SPAN does a historian survey in 2009. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. did one in the 90s where he really just kind of asked his friends their opinions of presidents. Lincoln always comes out number one. Uh, and it's for the reasons that, that we've kind of talked about a little earlier. The fact that in this time of unprecedented challenges. Uh, He takes bold leadership to preserve the union, that he provides a moral basis for what was going on through the Emancipation Proclamation and his his tremendous words in the Gettysburg Address in the second inaugural. Uh, And at the same time, he never loses sight about, about what America is, about who the American people are. There's pressure on Lincoln in 1864 to cancel the presidential election, that you cannot go through with an election in a time of war. It's too risky. But Lincoln refused. He essentially said that if the United States were to allow a rebellion by the southern states to prevent them from holding a free and fair democratic election, then they would have already lost the conflict. So he never loses sight of America's character as a free democratic people. So for me, Lincoln Lincoln has to be one. And then if you look at these these ratings, number two and number three, they they alternate between Roosevelt and and Washington. I mean, those are the people's consensus. Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, correct. Franklin Roosevelt, correct. Uh, Although TR is going to be in most people's top 10 as well. So for me, I think that that's, that's kind of the, the standard answer, and I wouldn't necessarily deviate from that, even though, as I said earlier, Eisenhower may be my personal favorite president. If you would have said anything other than Lincoln, I would have raised my eyebrows. Right. So, right. uh, <laughs> I lose my credibility immediately. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Worst. 
Right. And I think the worst president, uh, again, there is some some consensus here. Uh, the two choices that you most commonly hear, James Buchanan, Dickinson College's own James Buchanan. I wasn't going to mention uh, that. <laughs> who, unfortunately, as the country hurdles towards civil war through a misguided sense of his constitutional authority, doesn't take action, uh, feeling that he doesn't have the authority to challenge states that were preparing to secede. Uh, the other president that people point to as really just a failed, terrible president would be Warren G. Harding. Uh, that Harding more or less allowed his friends to rob the country blind while he spends the the time writing letters to to his lover, which were recently released. Uh, New York Times published some of them last year. They're extremely embarrassing if anyone wants to read these. Uh, but Harding's most famous quote sums up his administration. I am not fit for this office and should have never been here. Something to those, those effects. I, I can't imagine a president of the United States admitting that. Right. Well, at least he was honest. We'll he, he was honest. Except for all the corruption. Okay. Other than the corruption. Yeah. It's, it's, kind of like Vietnam, right? It's kind of like Vietnam. Vietnam. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed this, and I think that the, uh, our listeners probably did, too, that uh, in, on President's Day, other than talking about uh, the deals you can get at the car dealerships, which, by the way, you probably can, uh, or furniture on sale, it was nice to talk about presidents. And learn. I learned a lot here just as a student of history, learned a lot in the past hour. So uh, I, I think that uh, many of you did as well. So, uh, Dr. Dave. David O'Connell, Professor of Political Science at Dickinson College. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, And coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, one of the things we're going to be talking about is marketing to Latinos. That is on tomorrow's Smart Talk, so be sure to tune in.